California Berkeley, uh, who will be speaking on how to rise and work. And we'll notice that that word is emphasized here in the title. How to rise work on the topic, the ritual uses of Buddhist spells have been long and beyond. Uh, Professor Dalton came to the University of California, where uh, I was in Washington, for two years um, from Yale. Uh, he works on the name of religious history, topic ritual, paleography, and the Dunwall Manuscripts. He's author of the fourth kind of study on violence and the formation of Buddhism, co author of the Tibetan Topic Manuscripts from Dunwall, and the Circuit Catalog of the Sonic Collection for British Library. It's one of the most important collections of Buddhist materials and materials in the world. And we were very fortunate to have uh, someone who's worked with the Sivil Council. Uh, he's working on the history of Tibetan Buddhism as seen through the eyes of the Sutra Empowerment, no longer tradition of the Indian school. He's um, working on the ritual in the Buddhist ministers. I should mention that the question of the character of the Ryan is um, amongst Buddhist scholars of a certain world a hotly contested one. Um, it's not exactly the kind of thing that most people get uh, excited about, but those of us who've been working through do find it rather as a complicated and that's why there's emphasis on the fact that we were work of the topic. So some of these things are definitional characters for uh, something to be topic or further topic uh, and then how we're the ideas. So with all of that uh, I'd like to Uh, I hope I don't overwhelm you. Th this talk is a bit like a catalog also. Um, I, I've got a, a fair number of slides and basically it's sort of a tour of um, some of the uh, manuscripts and some sort of thoughts I've, I have about them in relation to Dharani's. Um, so there'll be a fair amount of material passing before your eyes. Um, um, sort of frame this talk today. Um, by trying to uh, direct it towards a certain ongoing debate among Buddhologists, as Professor Payne just uh, noted. In his 1996 book, Mantras and Mandarins, uh, uh, Michelle Strickman coined the term proto-tantric to describe this, uh, the literature and the practices of the Buddhist dharani. That is, the ill-defined genre of Mahayana sutras that focus on one or more dharani spells. Since Strickman made his suggestion, the term proto-tantric has been adopted by some and particularly in more recent years, uh, rejected by others. In a series of articles on the subject, for example, uh, Richard McBride has criticized the term for being part of a wider misunderstanding that has plagued scholars through most of the 20th century, namely that, quote, Dharani represent the kernel from which the first tantras developed, end quote. Ronald Davidson, too, in his groundbreaking study of 2002 uh, on tantric Buddhism, has, has referred to Strickman's term as somewhat misleading, and again, for similar reasons. So here, I'd, I don't mean to contradict uh, McBride, Davidson, and others who've argued in this vein. Indeed, I largely agree. Uh, that the Dharani Sutras are best seen as distinct from the generally speaking later Tantras. I would, however, like to refine somewhat 
our understanding of the historical relationship between dharanis and tantras by looking more closely at the ritual uses of these dharanis. It's well known that uh, some, some works preserved in the Chinese canon, particularly those dating from the Tang, uh, do not seem to have uh, maintained this t- dharani-tantra distinction very clearly. Amogavadra in particular, um, the great um, tantric master for uh, China, wrote a wide array of tantric yoga-tantra style uh, ritual manuals to be performed in conjunction with the recitation of dharanis. The resultant blurring of boundaries, so he's writing tantric uh, sort of ritual manuals on dharanis, which are generally non-tantric, and the resultant uh, blurring of boundaries between dharanis and tantras has caused considerable problems for modern scholars. In particular, uh, it's behind, for example, the now widely disregarded modern Japanese categories of zomitsu and junmitsu, miscellaneous tantra and pure tantra, miscellaneous being generally dharanis and pure tantras. Later, Tibetan opinions uh, similarly vary on this point. On the one hand, Tibetans clearly do distinguish uh, Dharani Sutras from Tantras. Yet, on the other hand, they do include hundreds of Dharani Sutras in the Tantra section of their canons, and sometimes even classify them as examples of Kriya Tantras. Personally, however, I'm happy to ignore the uh, early Chinese and later Tibetan traditions here and follow Davidson and others on this point for terminological clarity, if nothing else. In terms of their content, after all, dharanis are largely indistinguishable from ordinary Mahayana sutras. And indeed, sometimes they're called sutras. The dharani sutra, these names, they sort of switch uh, for these texts. So that's true for the, in terms of their content. Nevertheless, the level of ritual practice, it's important to recognize that there were strong historical continuities between the rites that accompanied the dharani recitation and the rituals of the tantras. This distinction between the contents and the ritual uses of dharanis is crucial for understanding this perplexing genre of Buddhist literature. Dharanis, after all, were rarely read for their content. Their reading was largely liturgical and generally a ritual affair. Dharanis were read less for their deep philosophical insights, thankfully, given how boring uh, they usually are. I hate to say it, but it's true. Um, uh, But for the meritorious ritual of reading's own sake. In this sense, how Dharanis were used may be more important than the significance of their content. When past scholars have studied dharanis, their focus has usually been the dharani spells that lie at the heart of the genre, from Bernouf's 1844 introduction to Buddhism, to Lamott's off-sited study, to Janet Gyatso and even Ronald Davidson's more recent work on dharani and memory, the spell has been the chief aspect of the genre to uh, draw scholarly attention. The dharani spell is undoubtedly a a fascinating concept. But we should remember that it functioned within a wider ritual context, embedded within larger dharani sutras, uh, or or within uh, liturgical collections, or uh, even ritual manuals. Surprisingly little has been written on how dharanis were actually used. Given all the formal, uh, given uh, that the formal uses of dharanis are of such historical significance, the manuscript cultures that surround them are particularly important. 
Only by considering the practices of writing, reading, and performing these dharanis can we begin to understand this intriguing genre of, of Buddhist literature. And what better place to explore Buddhist manuscript culture than the Dunhuang archive? So with my time here, I'd like to offer some observations on what the Tibetan Dunhuang manuscripts can tell us about how dharanis were used and what these uses in turn can tell us about the role of dharanis in the historical development of Buddhist ritual practice. So we should be, uh, perhaps begin uh, by clarifying a terminological distinction one that has some significance for the present paper actually. That is to what does the term dharani refer? For the, for the term is inherently ambiguous, referring both to the dharani spell itself, kind of like a mantra, uh, and to the larger dharani sutra within which the spell is introduced. This ambiguity between dharani spell and dharani sutra means that the repeated exhortations we find to recite the dharani, to copy the dharani, to place the dharani inside a stupa, and so on, might be read in two ways. Is one supposed to recite and copy just the spell or the entire sutra? Among the, the Dunhuang manuscripts, we see both interpretations. Sometimes the entire Dharani Sutra is copied for meritorious practices. So here, uh, IOL TibJ463 um, is a sort of concertina-style manuscript, so it sort of opens like this, and so you can read it. Uh, page by page um, without opening the whole thing. Um, it contains two works, uh, the popular Chinese apocryphal Bai Yang Jing or, um, and the uh, still more common Aparamita Yur Nama Mahayana Sutra. Um, both works were penned by one Druhu Rinchen. Uh, and in his colophon, he dedicates the merit from copying both of these sutras to his parents' future rebirth in heaven. So this is a case of a dharani, the entire sutra being copied for meritorious purposes. Other times, just the spell is copied. Paleo Tibetan 72 um, and uh, 73 are two examples of dharani spells that have been copied for merit. Their similar similarity probably indicates they are penned by the same hand. They're very similar looking, right? So their similarity probably indicates they're penned by the same hand, and it was apparently an ethnically Chinese scholar, a Ku Yunba, named uh, Jin Ten Kong. I don't speak Chinese, so excuse my pronunciation, uh, although it's in Tibetan uh, transliteration, so it's hard to say what it was. Uh, anyway, this Jin Ten Kong lived in Dunhuang. Uh, each manuscript contains two spells, the Ushnisha Vijaya Dharani and the Mahapratisara Vidya Rajni. And both manuscripts are dedicated to local ministers with Tibetanized names, the first to Lun Dodra and the second to Lun Pelzong. So these are examples of, of Dharni, just that they've extracted the spell from the sutra and copied those for meritorious purposes. There's one text that makes the, the two possible readings of the term Dharani explicit by recommending either option. Uh, IOL TibJ396 is a single folio uh, from a, the uh, Jayavati Nama Dharani. And it says one should copy either the syllables, presumably of the spell, meaning, uh, or the whole text. Um, the ambiguity between spell and text is also evident in the fact 
uh, that even the translators themselves seem sometimes to have had difficulties distinguishing the two. Here we should clarify that a, a basic dharani consists, a dharani sutra, consists of two parts. You've got the spell, or sometimes spells, and the larger narrative within which that spell is embedded. The larger narrative typically opens with a description of the setting, the nidana, in which Shakyamuni originally taught the spell. And then uh, the sutra then goes on to extol, often at great length, the many benefits associated with the spell. Uh, and so generally speaking, the translators, uh, of course, sought to translate uh, these narrative sections, but when it came to the spells, they, they just transliterated the spell, leaving it in Sanskrit. The problem that arises with some regularity, however, is where exactly uh, the one, the, the, the narrative, leaves off and the other, the spell, begins. So here, um, IOLTIBJ 311, uh, we can see how the spell is uh, partially uh, translated and partially transliterated. Um, well, uh, nobody can probably read Tibetan, but I guess you'll have to take my, uh, if anyone can, it says here, Tayata Om Sara Sara Chiri 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 Chiri, and then it suddenly is translated. Uh, Maha Karunika, uh, to Maha Karunika, I pay homage, and then it goes back into sort of nonsensical Sada Sada CDC, and so on. But here is the an ed edition of the canonical version that we received today, and I hope I can find it. Um, well, I'll take my word for it. Anyway, it's, it basically just leaves the uh, homage to Maha Karunika in. in uh, in transliteration. So that's eventually the decision they went with. But in this Dunhuang manuscript, uh, they didn't know, they, they were a little confused about what to do. Um, a similar confusion uh, appears in the Mahapratisara Vidyarajni, a copy of which appears in Dunhuang. Um, as one of the Pancha Raksha, uh, this um, is probably the most popular Dharani collection containing five separate Dharani sutras called the Pancha Raksha. It's very popular even today. Unfortunately, I don't have a slide of this, but actually you see this confusion again and again. So translating the spell uh, was sometimes probably a sign of confusion, but not always. We have already seen examples of the Ushnisha Vijaya spell being copied in transliteration right, just left in the Sanskrit but transliterated into Tibetan letters. Um, we also have at least two manuscripts that contain purposeful, purposeful translations of the Ushnishivijaya Dharani spell. Um, ILTIBJ322 is explicit that this is a, a translation. Um, so it's often suggested nowadays, it's sort of trendy in Buddhist studies to say, well, Actually, I just made the same point myself in opening this talk, that the content of these spells really doesn't matter, and it was just about reciting it. But here, actually, you see that some of them were interested in what they meant, and they wanted to know how, it, for the parts that you could translate, how you would translate them. So, we've seen examples of dharanis, both spells and the entire sutras, being copied for merit-making purposes. Other manuscripts make it clear, however, that they were copied in order to be used as liturgical texts, not simply for dedicating the merit of, of the copy. Um, IOL Tib J 311 
part is, is part of a collection of Dharani Sutras. It opens with the line, um, extracted for recitation, that is, uh, as the yidam, um, the sort of the daily practice. Uh, and it ends on the last page um, by, with a colophon that seems to imply that the, the entire collection was scribed by one person for the daily practice to, as the yidam for another. As seen here with this manuscript, the Dharani Sutras from Dunhuang often appear as part of a collection. They're called Dharani Sangraha. When found in this form, they generally lack the scribal dedication seen at the end of some of the individual Dharani Sutras. Um, individual spells or sutras, as we've seen, can be copied for merit-making, but these Dharani collections more often seem to have functioned as liturgical texts. So they weren't, the merit from copying them wasn't dedicated. They weren't copied for merit production. They were copied as ritual texts person to, that you could recite from. And the best-known example of this kind of Dharani Sangraha, um, you might say, is this already mentioned Pancharaksha, that's uh, a collection that was probably largely liturgical. But it's interesting, that particular collection became so famous that it may also have, have served a sort of a potropaic uh, function as well. In any case, I'd, uh, I'd like to turn to these sangraha, these collections now, to see more precisely what their structures can tell us about uh, how they were used in practice. For the most part, the contents of these collections seem to have been fairly arbitrary. Which dharanis uh, were to be included was apparently left up to the interests of the individual compiler. Many of the collections do, however, share some formal features, and it's here in their format that we can begin to discern the ritual function of the Dharani collections. The typical collection includes a number of short ancillary works. It opens with an invitation to the mundane gods and spirits, which is then followed by all the Dharani sutras, one after another, and then finally at the end of the collection, of this uh, liturgical collection, um, it closes with a series of prayers and praises. So Peter Skilling, in his work on the uh, Raksha literature in the Theravadan tradition, uh, has noted a similar pattern in the Paritta texts. In all of these collections, he writes, the, the canonical paritta texts, these sort of liturgical collections, are these canonical paritta texts are set with an ancillary opening and closing verses. Um, so here we see this is perhaps a sort of widespread, common kind of pattern you know, throughout Buddhist traditions. The significance of this basic structure of an opening invitation and then all the sutras and then the closing prayers becomes apparent when one sees that it also shapes the Dharani section of the later Tibetan canons. And actually, the, if you're looking in the, in the Tibetan canon, the place where they have all their Dharanis is actually called the Dharani Sangra, the, the Dharani collection. And uh, as you can see here, this is just from the Peking one of the editions. Uh, there are first two different versions of this invitation prayer that you see in Dunhuang, followed by all the sutras, 230 or so. And then uh, a couple dozen uh, closing prayers. So this same pattern that you see in these sort of personal liturgical collections in Dunhuang is actually followed uh, perfectly in the later canon. The invitation prayer, 
the opens the collections was clearly popular, as a number of recensions appear in both the Dunhuang manuscripts and here in, in the later canons. The Dunhuang versions bear the title, uh, An Invitation to the Great Gods and Nagas. And as the title suggests, the invitations are directed at the mundane gods and spirits of the Indian pantheon, from Indra to the Saptamatrika, these seven mothers, um, to all come and observe the recitations of the Dharani that will follow. So the closing line of the prayer reads, listen all of you to these words of the profound conqueror. So you do this whole invitation, and they come, and then they listen to you reciting the Dharani Sutras. Only after inviting these mundane gods would the Dharani be recited. This liturgical order is made explicit in one version of the uh, uh, invitation prayer, um, Paleo Tibetan 25, where immediately following this final line I just quoted, uh, well, no, sorry, immediately following the final line, uh, quote, listen all of you to the uh, words of the profound conqueror, end quote, the reader is then instructed, um, at this point one reads the sutra, those verses that were spoken by the Buddha. So in other words, at this point, the Buddha Vachan has then recited. Thus, these uh, formal Dharani collections were not simply canonical anthologies like we see in the canon. Uh, they were actual ritual liturgies created for recitation and in a prescribed ritual order. Further information on the ritual function of these Dharani collections can be gleaned from a detailed commentary on this, this first opening invitation prayer that's also found in the Dunhuang manuscripts. IOL Tibj 711 uh, situates, so this is a commentary on the invitation prayer, and it situates the invitation prayer strangely enough, within a familiar tantric narrative. In Vaishali, there was once a prince, we're told, who accomplished seven samadhi, seven meditative states, over the course of seven days. Having gained all the siddhis, he prostrated to the supreme non-dual Buddha and caused all of the gods and demons of the universe to tremble in fear. Now a wrathful Heruka Buddha, the prince rained down blazing vajras on the demons and bound them all to serve the Buddhist teachings. So here we have a full-blown tantric commentary on a prayer that is more commonly associated with the ritual recitation of Dharani Sutras. Uh, the myth of the mundane god's subjugation implies that by reciting the invitation prayers, the early Tibetan understood him or herself to be calling upon the mundane gods and spirits to witness his or her recitations of the dharani, and the summoned gods were bound to serve the reciter and fulfill whatever it is that he or she's trying to accomplish, um, thanks to their, their earlier subjugation by this Vaishali prince. So from this point, uh, after this uh, opening section, this commentary proceeds through line by line to comment on the rest of this invitation prayer, discussing each god and demon that's named, until the end where it re returns us to the ritual setting within which the invitations are to be read. Final advice is dispersed on which substances are to be offered, depending on which particular gods or demons the, the reader seeks to invoke. And special attention is given to the Nagas, whom we might conclude uh, were of particular concern for these early Tibetans. 
Given the detailed discussions found in uh, this manuscript, uh, Iowa Tib J711, it's clear that the Tibetans of Dunhuang were well aware of the liturgical significance of this invitation prayer that opened so many of the Dharani collections. We can further suggest that some Dharani reciters may even have directed their recitations at specific types of beings, such as Nagas, using the appropriate offerings depending on which effects they uh, desired. So it's interesting to see here how the ritualized recitation of Dharanis was a practice into which early Tibetans interpolated their tantric interests. The story of the Haruka Buddha taming Rudra, usually, uh, the sort of demon of primordial ignorance, is the tantric myth par excellence. And here, in ITJ 711, it's used to explain the power of the Dharanis over the gods and spirits of the mundane world. Tantric myth is used to explain Dharani ritual. As seen in this manuscript, some early Tibetans at least understood their Dharani liturgical collections within a Tantric mythological context. Another place where we see Tantric deities being interpolated into a Dharani-related liturgy is um, IOL Tibj 466. Um, you have to imagine this is actually was originally a scroll that's read horizontally, and then the early conservators at the British Library chopped it up and found it in a proper book format. Um, they now have to undo everything they did before. Um, so this ITJ 466 is interesting uh, for a number of reasons. First, we can observe, as I just did, that it reads horizontally, and this fact uh, may suggest an early date. Its horizontal format makes it unlike the generally later scrolls that read uh, sort of vertically um, and uh, often contain tantric or uh, historical texts. Uh, and it's like the professionally scribed, generally 9th century copies of the Aparamita Yurnama, Mahayana Sutra, and so on, that are found in such great numbers in Dunhuang and were clearly done. It's possible they were done on, on, uh, at the request of the Tibetan king for, for merit-making purposes. Uh, I put these in here just to give you a feel for what I'm talking about. So this is a typical later probably the late 10th century uh, vertical scroll with tantric material on it. Um, and here's a typical uh, earlier, possibly 9th century, professionally scribed Aparamita Yurnama. Um, and it's also perhaps relevant here that on the back of um, my manuscript, you have to remember I'm talking about this 466, on the back of it there's no Chinese, and in, in the later Tibet, uh, 10th century manuscripts you often find that. Here's an example. There seems to have been a paper shortage or something later on, uh, and so often you'll find a Tibetan text written on the back of a scroll that's already been used for Chinese. Here, in fact, they've taken it one step further and they're even writing Tibetan between the lines. It has nothing to do with, the two texts have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> They're just using the space. So, back to 466. Um, in terms of content, uh, ITJ 466 includes a copy of this invitation that I've been talking about to the great gods and nagas, as well as the Ushnishi Vijaya Dharani spell, 
just the spell extracted from the sutra and several other dharanis and uh, liturgical works. But here I want to focus on the third item in this manuscript, the so-called, in Tibetan it's called the Gyuchak Sumba, uh, um, and in Sanskrit it's called the Tri Dandaka. So this Tri Dandaka is a three-part liturgical sequence. This is where it gets a little complicated. Uh, so it's a, the, the third text in this. Now we can forget about this manuscript. It, the Tri Dandaka itself has three parts. Um, and this three-part uh, liturgical sequence is well known in India. It's referred to uh, multiple times in the Mula Savrastivada Vinaya and appears to have been used in a variety of ritual contexts from funerary rituals to uh, chaitya worship to offering uh, rites performed for a tree spirit before you cut down its tree. Um, in his late 7th century re record of the Buddhist religion, the Chinese master Yi Xing attributes at least one version of the Tree Dandaka to Ashvagosha, uh, the famous uh, Indian poet, and um, describes its threefold structure as consisting of first, so these three parts, the first part, ten verses exalting the three jewels, followed by uh, an unidentified work of um, Buddhist speech, a sutra or something, that is to be recited. And then finally, ten more lines of closing prayers and dedications. So this is how Yi Xing describes the typical Tri Dandaka. Precisely which work he, uh, uh, no, sorry, precisely which work is meant to be recited as the central text, the second of these three parts, um, appears to be flexible. Taisho 801 uh, in the Chinese canon represents one version of the Tree Dandaka that contains a short sutra, the, the second text, um, is a short sutra on impermanence, and scholars have suggested that it may uh, therefore be particularly well suited for a funerary context. So in ITJ 466, it seems we have another version of this Tree Dandaka, this one compiled in early Tibet, and possibly given the format of the manuscript, even dating from the late Tibetan imperial period of the first half of the ninth century. The three parts of this Tibetan Tree Dandaka follow an order very similar to the one described by Yi Xing. There are, however, some significant differences. The first part does indeed contain a series of prayers to the three jewels, but here it follows the structure of the seven-limbed worship, or Saptapuja, sort of standard uh, um, Mahayana kind of early Indian liturgical sequence. Also different from Yixing is the fact that this uh, first dandaka, this first of the three parts, culminates in a recitation of the Puja Mega uh, Dharani, which is an offering dharani, thereby affecting the offerings promised in the preceding prayers to the three jewels. And then this first part is followed by the central text, this one that could be varied depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, again, uh, just as Yixing describes, and then the manuscript ends with a final section of closing prayers and de dedications. Interestingly, uh, each of the three parts begins with a little instruction on how it should be recited. The first and last parts which are the fixed parts, the three jewels, and then the closing prayers, it says, should be recited without melody, while the middle one, the actual Buddha Vachana, the word of the Buddha, um, should be accompanied by a melody. So this second of the three parts, which in Yixing's description is open to ritual interpretation, here 
consists of a long series of praises. Praises are, off, are offered to an assortment of uh, deities, uh, teachers, and Buddhist patrons of the past, as well as the teachers of our own Tibet, and even the great king, Trisong Detsen of Tibet, who is here described as a magically emanated lord who has mastered the royal methods of fortune and rules the kingdom with the sword of the sky gods, end quote. So this is not Buddha Vachana. Right? This is now that the middle section has been taken out and has been put in with a Tibetan composition on behalf of the uh, Tibetan kingdom. The early Tibetan king here is placed alongside some of the best-known Indian Buddhist kings in this series of prayers, including Ashoka, Kanishka, and Harsha um, Shiladitya. Clearly, then, this text was written or at least supplemented significantly inside Tibet. But perhaps even more interesting for our present purposes is the fact that this central text includes some tantric deities in its praises, from the wrathful Buddhas Triloki Vijaya Akshobhya and Yamantaka to the female deities Mamaki and Mahamayuri, all the deities of the secret mandala are named and venerated. And to these are also added the local gods of Tibet. So here I'd like to suggest that we view this Tridundaka liturgy as similar in this regard um, to the invitation prayers that we've already examined. In both cases, tantric elements are read into a well-known and non-tantric Indian ritual procedure. It seems that liturgical manuals served as a kind of doorway through which Tibetans could insert themselves and their tantric interests into the Buddhist tradition. Liturgical works of this sort, after all, were, were extra-canonical and, and open to local innovations. They were linked to more canonic, canonical works, these Dharani Sutras that were, that were closed to such innovations, yet they provided a, a sort of forum for new liturgical and ritual forms to be tested and kept or discarded. With this insight in mind, I'd like to turn now to a related genre of Buddhist texts, one that uh, once again seems to have been a site of great innovation for Buddhists of the 7th to 9th centuries and beyond. Having examined the liturgical formats in which the Dharani Sutras were transmitted, I'd like to turn to the ritual manuals in Sanskrit. They're called vidhi, in Tibetan choga. Uh, the ritual manuals that accompanied many of these Dharani Sutras. It's here, I believe, that we see a most interesting connection between the ritual practices of the Dharanis and the Tantras. We've or, we, we already have observed that the basic Dharani Sutra consists of two parts, the spell and the narrative setting. Um, uh, uh, that sort of contains the Nidana and the various benefits derived from the spell. In addition, however, some Dharani Sutras also contain a third part, a ritual section, um, that described the rites associated with that particular dharani. The ritual section is often found marked off from the rest of the text in some way. So in the Mahashitavana uh, Sutra, for example, a short vidhi, this is a short ritual, a short uh, ritual sort of manual or ritual description um, and ritual instructions uh, is tacked on at the end of the text uh, following um, 
and actually sort of had some fine phrases in it. But, and now we get into the big, the original section, just reading lines. At the end of the text, so it's, it's clearly sort of added as a sort of appendix. Um, and then in the Mogapasha Hridaya Dharani, uh, the final title in the Dunhuang manuscript, sorry, I should have explained this is from a, a tantra, so you can still see even in, uh, sorry, not the tantra, it's from the canon. So actually, the sort of appended character of these, some of these ritual manuals is even still visible and has been preserved in the printed, later printed canons. Um, so in this Dunhuang manuscript, um, uh, this is of the Amogapasha Hridaya Dharani, the final title in the Dunhuang manuscript actually makes it explicit that the ritual manual, the Vidi section, is an addendum of sorts. Um, that's not the right text. <laughs> I'm getting confused. There are so many slides. Okay, well, here. Uh, um, it says, along with the ritual manual. So it's quite, the title is quite explicit that they've added something here. The odd textual arrangements of these Dharani Vidi first caught my attention when I was studying a relatively well-known Ch Chinese altar diagram from Dunhuang. The Chinese writing above the diagrams uh, in these large letters at the top specifies that the um, altar depicted is for the worship of the Ushnishi Vijaya Dharani. Around the central image are arranged votive oil lamps, flower offerings, incense, and containers of water. On reading the Ushanisha Vijayadharani, however, in the Tibetan canon, I was surprised to discover no discussion of any such ritual. But in the Tibetan canon, we do find a second Ushanisha Vijayadharani. So the, the main Ushanisha Vijayadharani in the canon is just the narrative and the spell. There's no, no discussion of any ritual practice. But then there's another Ushanisha Vijayadharani, and you don't find that. That's not in the Chinese canon. Titled the Sarvatathagata Ushanisha Vijaya Namadharani Kalpa Sahita, which is a little like that other slide, it means along with the ritual uh, procedures. Uh, this work deals with the same Dharani spell, but here, as the title suggests, we find the Vidi or the Kalpa, the ritual section, that begins as follows. This is just to give you an example. I don't think I gave a slide of this, no. Uh, this is just an example of a very simple kind of Dharani ritual. They get a lot more complicated. With cow dung that has, you're supposed to, this is not dirty, this is actually pure. If you catch it before it hits the ground and then you smear it on the ground uh, to sort of make a, a platform. So with cow dung you make a square mandala, which in early times a mandala was not what we think of today. It was actually just an altar. That you make. So you, with cow dung you make a square mandala and uh, scatter it with white flowers. Place oil lamps and melted butter with melted butter in it in the four uh, corners. Make an incense of aloe and fir. Adorn with flowers vessels filled with water that has been similarly perfumed with aloe and fir. And in the center place a stupa or a statue containing the thridaya, the, the, the words of the dharani, the syllables of the dharani. 
Um, while touching it with your left hand and holding a rosary in your right, recite the Dharani spell three times each day for 21 days. Then if you drink the offering waters in three sips from cupped hands, you will have no illness, your life will be long, your enemies will fade, your intellect will be sharp, your speech noble. And if you sprinkle those waters around a barn or stables or around a royal palace, there will be no fear of thieves, snakes, spirits, or demons. There will be no afflictions from illness. If you sprinkle them over someone's head, that person will be cured of any illness. You see what I mean by darn, he's getting a little long-winded. But you get the idea. That's the sort of typical little ritual. Um, the correspondences between this passage and our Dunhuang diagram, I hope, are obvious enough. Uh, in the middle here it says, well, the Buddha, so according to our ritual menu, it could either be a statue or a little stupa containing inside uh, the actual Dharani spell. Um, and then you've got the various offerings described around it on this altar. So this is a mandala altar. A ritual manual resembling, in, at least, uh, this Tibetan Kalpa Sahita Dharani um, must have been known to the Chinese Buddhists around Dunhuang. Some sort of manual was apparently circulating alongside the main Dharani Sutra that we have today. And eventually this manual came to be formulated as a, a completely independent sutra that was in, include, then included in the Tibetan canon, so that you have two different versions of the Dharani, one that's the original Dharani and one that's the sort of ritual version. So here you see how a video ritual manual is sort of canonized as a standalone sutra. A similar situation, again with one Dharani sutra focusing on the narrative parts and another on the ritual parts, has been observed by Gregory Chopin. In a 1985 article, Chopin notes that the Samanta Mukha Pravesha and the Sarva Prajna Dharanis both deal with the same Dharani spell, but that the former is, quote, almost entirely made up of narrative and lacks the detailed descriptions of the necessary ritual procedures. It does not have a vidi section. What appears to be the vidi section, however, is found in the Sarva Prajna, which, not surprisingly, contains very little narrative, end quote. Chopin goes on to argue, on the basis of a scribal error in the copying of the spell, that the ritual text was probably written after the narrative, Samanta Mukha Pravesha, which I think is probably the case in the Ushnisha Vijaya that I just looked at, and that this uh, later ritual text was probably written sometime between the 6th and 9th centuries. Probably more like the 7th century. When we combine the evidence on the Ushnisha Vijaya Dharani with Chopin's observations here on his two Dharani and the awkward format of the Vidi sections that I showed before in so many of these other Dharanis, a pattern begins to emerge. It seems that the ritual sections of many Dharani sutras may have been added later, at some point after the earlier recensions containing the spell couched in the narrative setting had already been circulating. Of course, many other Dharani sutras continued to be composed uh, in one go later on with the Vidi sections already present, but these tend to be later works composed after the 6th century. Uh, finally, we may also note that in the Pang Tangma, which is a 9th century Tibetan catalog of Buddhist translations done in these, er, this early imperial period, in this catalog, the Dharani lists are divided into those with Vidi attached and those without Vidi attached. Uh, some 13 Dharani sutras with Vidi sections uh, are, are listed, 
um, and that these early Tibetan translators themselves distinguished the Vidhi-bearing sutras from the rest seems to indicate that they too recognized the significance of the addition of this ritual manual section to these works. So all this leads us to a further question, when exactly did these Buddhist manuals begin to appear? Certainly, there were rituals in Buddhism right from the beginning, uh, the monastic ordination rites being one good example. The principal source for the ordination rites, however, seems to have been the canonical Vinaya, and to my knowledge at least, not distinct manuals. Today's Theravada ordinations do include the use of kamavacca, or manuals, which consist of passages extracted from the Vinaya, but there's little evidence of their use in early Buddhism. Another place to look for early ritual manuals might be in connection with the Mahayana liturgical format of the Seven Limb Prayer that I've already mentioned. However, Dan Stevenson, a specialist in Chinese, early Chinese Buddhism, has spent some time exploring the Indian roots of this ubiquitous seven-part uh, liturgical sequence and has himself remarked on the peculiar lack of any related manuals. Nonetheless, we must maintain the possibility that scattered ritual notes or even short manuals may have existed in Buddhism uh, to some limited extent prior to the sudden and dramatic proliferation we see uh, around the later Dharani literature. So, uh, so particularly because I'm on video, I, I'm, I hesitate to say this, but generally speaking, what I'm trying to say is it was really with, in, in, in association with the Dharanis that ritual manuals became a, a, a major genre that was used um, in Buddhism. In order to determine when Buddhist ritual manuals really began to spread, we can look to the Chinese translations of the relevant Dharanis. Toward this end, I've conducted a preliminary survey of Dharani Vidhi sections. Certainly more work needs to be done. But it seems that uh, rit ritual sections first started to appear around the second half of the fifth century. These are the very earliest inklings. Uh, Strickman has noted the anomalously early ritual uh, techniques described in the Chinese Apocryphal Consecration Sutra, which uh, dates from the second half of the fifth century. And a few similar ritual discussions dating from the same period may also exist. Uh, in short, all indications suggest that ritual manuals began to appear in Buddhism around the mid-fifth century, and then they continued to gain increasing popularity through the next decades, and by the middle of the sixth century, Buddhist vidis were proliferating rapidly throughout India. Despite the possible existence of earlier, or early manuals in connection with ordination rites or the seven-limbed worship, this sudden proliferation of ritual manuals in the late 5th and 6th centuries seems to have been unprecedented. Never before had such a number of locally produced manuals played such a, a central role in Buddhist practice. And compared to the earlier seven-limbed worship, the new rites described in the manuals were far more complex and of a completely different order. No longer just liturgies, the early Dharani Vidis described rites that placed a greater emphasis on arranging the ritual space and the practitioner's own physical activities. Now the reader prepared the ritual ground, constructed an altar, scattered flowers, sprinkled waters, and worshiped the central image while reciting the appropriate spells. 
before long, these basic ritual forms were being varied according to the practitioner's desired results. So that the Amogapasha Hridaya's video section, for example, describes a number of ritual variations that could be performed. You practice it like this for curing disease, like that for turning back curses, and so forth. And from these kinds of variable rites, it was a short step, I would argue, to the full-blown tantric rituals you see in the early tantras. A proliferation of ritual manuals in the 6th century is of great significance for the history of tantric Buddhism, of course. For within a hundred years of this date, we see the first tantras beginning to emerge. By the early 7th century, the first so-called Kriya tantras were emerging in India, and by around 640, the seminal Mahavirochana Abhisambodhi Tantra was in circulation. These initial tantras were the direct descendants of the earlier ritual manuals. The 8th century scholar Buddha Guhya provides our earliest significant Indian discussion of the tantras as a whole. Having distinguished the Kriya tantras from the slightly later Yoga tantras, he then distinguishes two subclasses within the typically earlier Kriya category. There are the, the general tantras that are compilations of ritual manuals, he says, and the distinct tantras, the sort of standalone tantras. Under the former type, the general tantras that are compilations of ritual manuals, he lists the classic Kriya sources, such as the Susidikara, the Subahu Paripracha, and the Kalpalagu. And indeed, these are all essentially compilations of ritual manuals. Thus, by seeing ritual manuals as a key developmental bridge between the earlier Dharanis and the later Tantras, we're simply following Buddhaguya's lead. Many of the earliest Kriya Tantras were simply collections of these new ritual manuals. Uh, Matsunaga, Skilling, and many others have demonstrated the difficulties inherent in trying to identify Tantric Buddhism with the advent of any one single ritual practice, be it visualization, chanting mantras, or whatever. They point out that the accumulation of such supposedly tantric ritual techniques was really an extremely gradual process that unfolded over many centuries. Yet only with the sixth century do we begin to see the rapid proliferation of ritual manuals as a distinct genre. This new body of literature facilitated uh, more complex ritual sequences, but it also required a new place in the Buddhist systems of canonical classification. And so eventually were born the tantras. Here we may remind ourselves again that tantras were texts, and as such, their literary forebears were the new ritual manuals. In this case, in this sense, Dharanis may not have been proto-tantric, but their ritual manuals truly were. I'd like to end by returning to the Chinese altar diagram that began my own interest in Dharanis and to speculate a bit on how more precisely ritual manuals may have contributed to the rise of tantras. In fact, we still have no clear textual source for this particular altar as it's depicted. This Tibetan Kalpa Sahita manual that I quoted above describes a similar altar, also for the worship of uh, Ushnisha Vijaya, but it does not mention the various other deities that appear in our diagram. The Chinese, because there are other deities placed on the altars, not just one Buddha in the middle. 
The Chinese ritual manuals available in the Taisho, the Chinese canon, do place other deities on the altar, but not the same ones. The closest match seems to be the manual attributed to Amogavadra, which dates to 764. He too describes an altar in a three by three, which this generally is, uh, format of nine squares. But in place of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that surround the central Buddha image on our diagram, he has the well-known set of eight Bodhisattvas. In terms of ritual, Amogavadra describes rites that are drawn more from the greatly influential system of the Vajrashekara, or the so-called so root tantra of the yoga class, a sort of classic tantric text. So it's clear that here Amogavadra was reading his beloved later tantric ritual techniques back into the Ushnishivijaya Dharani. And indeed, he's quite explicit about doing so. Uh, at, at some places he says, well, I'm describing it like this, but if you want to do it like the Dharani really says, you would do it more like that. He knows there's a difference. Another interesting manual for the worship of the same dharani, the Ushanisha Vijaya, is one attributed, in the, that's also found in the Chinese canon, is one attributed to the Indian master Shubhakara Simha, who was active in China in the early 8th century, a few decades before Amogavadra. Being as early as they are, the writings of Shubhakara Simha provide many valuable insights into the early formation of the Yoga Tantras and Tantric Buddhism more generally. Shubhakara Simha's Ushnishivijaya manual also reads later developments into the rites surrounding Ushnishivijaya. But unlike Amogavadras, they're less drawn from another ritual system. These later developments seem to seem in some way more native to the Ushnishivijaya system itself or at least so I would suggest. Uh, where Amogavadra surrounds the central Buddha with eight great bodhisattvas from the Vajrashekara uh, group, Shubhakara Simha has a set of eight Ushnisha Buddhas, Ushnisha Sitatapatra, Ushnisha uh, Tejo Rasti, Ushnisha Chakravartin, and so on, surrounding the central Buddha. The full significance of these ritual developments becomes clear when we turn to the full-fledged tantras and specifically to the Sarvas Durgadi Parishodana Tantra. The Sarva Durgadi is an influential member of the Yoga Tantra class, again, a classic tantra, and it probably developed around the early 8th century. While clearly influenced by the Vajrashekara, it represents a distinct line of development within the Yoga Tantras. Others have noted a possible connection between the Sarvadurgati Parishodana Tantra and this Ushnishvijaya Dharani. For starters, the latter's uh, full title, this Ushnishvijaya Dharani, is in fact the Sarvadurgati Parishodana Ushnishvijaya Dharani. Uh, and both works, moreover, open with similar narratives. To summarize, a Devaputra, a, son, a, a god, uh, dwelling in um, the god realms, learns he's soon going to die and that he will then plunge into the hells for an eon of terrible sufferings. Greatly distressed, he goes to the Buddha to plead for help. The Buddha is moved by compassion and teaches the saving techniques of the dharani, or the tantra, as the case may be, because the same narrative is found at the beginning of both the Ushnishvijaya and the Sarvadurgati tantra. The Sarvadurgati and the Ushnishvijaya tell quite different versions of the story, but the basic plot is the same, and it's clear that Buddhists of the period themselves saw these two stories as interchangeable. IOL Tibj 439 is a sadhana, 
for the Sarvadurgati Parishodana Tantra, and it proves this point. It, too, opens with the same narrative account, but here, in this Dunhuang manuscript, we find not a simple summary of the Tantra's canonical version of the story, but a sophisticated weave of both the Tantric and the early Dharani versions. So clearly, then, these two works were seen by many as somehow related. The nature of this relationship may become clearer when we look at the iconography of the Tantra's Sarvadurgati Parishodana Mandala. For here, we find a ritual altar that you make with the Buddha at the center and the now familiar eight Ushnisha Buddhas surrounding it in precisely the same pattern seen in Shubhakarasimha's Chinese Ushnisha Vijaya Dharani ritual manual. So we're left with a striking suggestion that the Ushnisha Vijaya Dharani and the Sarvadurgati Parishodana Tantra were developmentally related in more ways than one and that the bridges that linked them may well have been the multiple ritual manuals that grew up around this tradition. Um, bridges most clearly represented by Shubhakar Simha's early 8th century manual. The original Ushanisha Vijaya Dharani spawned numerous manuals then that continued to develop over the century that followed its appearance. And by the eight, early 8th century, the developments that were sort of happening in India had reached a critical mass, and the new Sarvadurgati Parishodana Tantra was compiled to sort of re-encapsulate the ritual tradition. The genre of Dharani Vidis thus offers an in, invaluable window onto the development of early tantric or proto-tantric uh, ritual techniques. Uh, through these texts, we can catch a glimpse of a formative period when Buddhist ritual was in full flux. These long-lost literary treasures attest to the powerful influence of local innovation and individual practice upon the development of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Only the Dharani Vidis and liturgical collections, thanks to their fluid and individualizable character, could allow for the innumerable creative mutations that were necessary for the canonical tantras to evolve. By now, I hope it's clear just how much we can learn from the material culture of these Dharanis materials at, at Dunhuang. We've examined how Dharanis were copied, how they were dedicated, how they were arranged into collections, and how their supplemental rituals were developed and updated over time. Only through such observations can we begin to appreciate how Buddhist dharani functioned within the larger ritual traditions of 10th century Dunhuang and beyond. Perhaps more than any other genre of Buddhist literature then, dharanis tell us more about themselves through their form than through their content. Thanks. Mm -hmm. And uh, the bases, right? Um, and the bases of some of the stupids are identical to the drawing that you had at the altar. Do you see some connection there? <laughs> I was at the same lecture, and I saw, you know, uh, the same. I, I thought the same thing, but um, I don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> he seemed to as to why it was a. He described it as cruciform rather than nine. Square. Right, and he said it was the that descended from heaven format yeah. of of a, of a stupa base. Um, so, 
I was curious about that. Uh, the, this, I mean, this is really a, a relatively arbitrary uh, thought, but um, it occurred to me that there's this story of, uh, you know, the way Buddhism first came into Tibet is it descended from heaven, and that there's a story of how the Tantras first appeared in the world, that they descended from heaven to a king who's standing on the roof of his palace after seven having seven dreams, which actually I think is related to the story that I talked about where yes, the king has seven, this prince has seven samadhis and so on. So this is a, a very popular story that's being told in all sorts of different contexts around then. So, you know, this is a, a real stretch, but maybe somehow the tantras descended from heaven and the stupa was related to the descent from heaven. But that, I've, on the other hand, descent from heaven in that case may be more about the Buddha coming back from Triasimsika heaven after teaching his mother. So, I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I agree with everything you said. And, um, and it's a bit of a chicken and the egg question. I, I sort of think as rituals became increasingly complex, they required texts or manuals to write them down so that people could perform them correctly. But then on the other hand, manuals allowed the rituals to get more complex. So once these manuals started to be used, it was a whole new game, you know. Um, but I agree that uh, early on it was either oral or, you know, maybe just some very informal notes. I mean, another way of looking at this shift is maybe that there were some very informal, very personal, sort of uh, loosely organized ritual notes that were used by early Buddhists. And that what we're seeing here, I'm describing these manuals as so creative because of their extra canonical kind of local innovative qualities. But in fact, in another way, maybe what we're seeing here is really locally produced, personally produced, innovative notes, where actually this is part of the process of them being taken on by the elite and that they're being put into writing and that they're starting to circulate, even if they're less formally circulated than canonical sutras. They're being being circulated at the, between the monastic elites. And, the, you know, when rituals start to be put into writing, you know that you know, that something new is happening. It's not just sort of villagers doing their offerings, but that 
you know, the, the very act of putting uh, practices into writing is some is maybe a sign of their adoption by the elite uh, levels of, of Buddhist institutions. So, um, I, you know, basically, I think you're absolutely right, and it, it, that point sort of highlights a number of different aspects of this process. Oh, thank you. Um, do you know uh, anything about uh, the incorporation of uh, Dharani syllables into the later tantric mantras or it's, or um, that Dharani, it seems to me that um, some Dharani sounds are maintained uh, to some extent. Do you know anything about that um, in the ritual transmission? I mean, uh, I guess to, uh, a lot of people have talked about what's the difference or what's the relationship between dharani spells and mantras, and they're basically, I sort of think, I don't know, maybe I'm just lazy, but I, I sort of feel like they're basically the same. You know, it's easier just to think of them as the same. Um, and by the time you get tantras, mantras, I mean, tantras are, there are mantras everywhere. There's no tantras that then bring mantras on. Um, and so... I guess I sort of see them as, yeah, just sort of continuous, and that, and it's not even just a Buddhist phenomenon. I mean, you really have to look at the rise of tantras, of the tantras, in terms of this isn't just happening in Buddhism. This is happening in Jainism, Hinduism, like it's the whole Indian religious tradition across across traditions is, is changing. So, and and there, and it's partly this collapsing of sectarian boundaries, a renegotiating of orthodox and heterodox that means that a lot of these practices are just shifting between traditions. So the mantras, I mean these syllables that are being used, a lot of them are coming out of the Vedic tradition as the line between Vedic and heterodox traditions like Buddhism from the Vedic tradition, Buddhist, Buddhism's heterodox, right? So that, that line is collapsing, so they're adopting a lot of this is coming out of Vedic ritual. Uh, and then a lot of them then maybe from local at the sort of village or tribal level or something. So, uh, I was interested when you're talking about the openness to ritual interpretation and you just kind of glazed over melody and I wonder if you could just talk more about that and what that meant. Um, I have to admit I haven't thought about it much. Uh, the, uh, let's see. I mean, what I showed there was the fact that um, in this in this text that I was looking at, that the actual Buddha Vachana section of this liturgy had to be recited in a melody. So, if that's indicative of anything, it would be that um, melody is somehow. Um, has a sort of higher is is used for text that is higher status in some way, um, and uh, you know I actually see that to some degree even in in later tantric sadhana you see often instructions will be in in prose and then all of a sudden they'll come to the the sort of powerful part of the ritual and it'll, it'll switch into verse 
and and I think you're supposed to sing it and so on. So um, I do think that, that that's probably part of a larger trend. But, about the um, innovation within the sequence of the uh, Dharani. And I was wondering if that would be seen as affecting the apotropaic. Okay, the first, the, well, the second question, since, since that's what I'm remembering right now. Um, the, uh, in terms of that one text, the Tree Dundika, I don't, I, I don't think a whole lot, I may be wrong, but I haven't seen, I've seen scholars really wondering what this is, and so that implies to me that it's not practiced very much anymore. Um, but I do think, of course, this, the flexibility of of uh, the sort of innovations in ritual genres, in sort of extra-canonical ritual genres, continues to this day. I mean, Western Buddhists, myself included, I, you know, in my own personal text, I oh, like that prayer jamming in there. And, you know, everybody, if you look at their practice tests, if they've had it for a few years, they've got scrawls of notes in the margins and little extra pages stuck in. So, you know, we all personalize our, our rituals in, in, uh, in all sorts of ways. And your first question... Oh, yeah. And the apotropy, yeah. I mean, this is something I, I need to develop more, but it, I, and I sort of alluded to it here. I, I do think there's an interesting distinction to be made between the liturgical and the apotropaic functions of these. And in the liturgical, on the liturgical side, yeah, you can vary it depending on what you want to accomplish. And I think you're absolutely right, though, that that, that flexibility when it comes to the more apotropaic side of the equation probably disappears because it's supposed to be again, it's supposed to be canonical Buddha Vat and this is magic. I mean, it's a little why they don't translate the Dharani spells because it's the words that have the power. It's not you know the number of pages or something. Yeah. 